0: Well, good morning again. Thanks for gathering here this morning and thanks for bringing the church uh, into this beautiful space this morning. It's good to be with you. For those of you that are gathered with us online, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or maybe around your dining room table, wherever you happen to be. It's good to be able to to gather as God's people. And again, uh, happy Father's Day to the dads that are here. So I want to say happy Father's Day to my dad and my father-in-law and uh, for all the dads here. Also, just as a general celebration, because when you're having donuts after the service and you, uh, it didn't seem fair to be like, well, just the men get it. So it's a free-for-all. It is open to all, but we will, we will celebrate that way together after the service. But Before that, we're going to open up God's Word. We are continuing this series called Come and See, and it's this journey through the great book of John, and so we're making our way through this. We're spending the bulk of 2021 in this particular book, and it is just this most helpful way to get oriented to, like, who is Jesus and the invitation that he gives us to come and to know him and to experience life. And so this morning, we're going to finish John chapter 8, but before we do that, let me read this quote uh, from C.S. Lewis, and he talks about how Christianity literally changes everything. When we understand Jesus and when we understand the gospel, it begins to give us just a new lens by which to see everything. And so Lewis says this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So what Lewis is driving at is this. When Jesus makes himself real to you, and you begin to understand it, regardless of what's going on circumstantially. You could be celebrating just the greatest things ever in your life or mourning the deepest, most painful things ever or anywhere in between. There's a whole new lens by which we actually see and understand those things because our minds, our hearts, our lives have been illuminated by the reality, by the light of Jesus, which is what we're going to look at not only this morning but into next week. Jesus makes this bold declaration that he's the light of the world so what does it look like for you and I to walk in the light of the gospel, to understand who Jesus is? Because here's what I know. There's enough brokenness in the world. It's not just conceptually or theoretically out there like it's in this room. There's hardship. There's difficulty. And it's not even just external circumstances, but it's also like in my heart when I'm honest. And so this morning, the text is going to help us. And along with that quote I even just read, to think through What do you do with the darkness? What do you do with the pain? What do you do with the suffering? I mean, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's what I know is at least present in this room this morning. Like you look at that list and there's all kinds of things where like the darkness can begin to envelop us. Maybe you've lost a loved one or just your relationship with your kids or finances. You're dealing with addiction, physical health, emotional health, mental health, like all of those things Your relationship with God, there's family strain, broken relationship. Like We could go on and on and on and we could add to that list. There would be no lack of things to talk about. And even in that, that's just the things sometimes that happen to us. What about what's going on actually in my heart? Like What brokenness and darkness do I bring to the table? So not just the ways that I experience the brokenness and maybe the ways that I'm sinned against, but how am I sinning against other people? What are the things that I'm doing? And so This morning, the text is going to help us sort of illuminate our thinking to be able to see hopefully more clearly our need and then the beauty and the wonder that is Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be after this morning. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 12 to 59. It takes us all the way through the end of the chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible, if you want to follow along at cplife.church, you can swipe over on your phone. The second card there will say message notes. And the text will be there. Now, as you're looking at that, it is a long text. And so you have cushioned seats now, so get ready. All right? Now, um, in all seriousness, there's way more than we could possibly cover in our time. But what I want to do is look at this statement and moment that Jesus makes, and we'll make our way through it section by section. And in light of him declaring, I'm the light of the world, how does that confront us? And then how does that actually bring comfort to us? And so admittedly, there's far more in here. We could tease things out. We could have hours of conversation around just certain sections. But we don't have time for all of that. But I will read it kind of section by section as we, as we go through. And so as I said, there's an initial claim that Jesus makes. And he's been making a lot of claims throughout the book of John. And he's giving us clues as to how to understand him and, and who he is. And so let me read verses 12 to, uh, 12 to 18 here, and we'll see the context for which Jesus makes this claim and some of the conversation that ensues as he makes this declaration that he is the light of the world. And so John chapter 8, 12 to 18, here's God's word. It says this, Jesus spoke to them again, and he said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, Uh, "'You are testifying about yourself. "'Your testimony is not valid. "'Well, even if I testify about myself,' Jesus replied, "'my testimony is true "'because I know where I came from and where I'm going. "'But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. "'You judge by human standards. "'I judge no one. "'And if I do judge, my judgment is true because "'because it is not I alone who judge, "'but I and the Father who sent me. "'Even in your law it is written "'that the testimony of two witnesses is true.' I'm the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Now, to understand this, one of the things that would be helpful to kind of dial into for a moment is one of the things that's been happening, particularly in the last few chapters that we've been in, is there's this retelling or there's the celebration of the Exodus story and this new liberation, this new freedom that Jesus is offering. And so the Exodus story was the ultimate story for God's people. They'd been enslaved in Egypt and how God rescued them. And so as we've journeyed through the book of John, like we go back to John chapter 6, and Jesus feeds the 5,000, and he talks about the fact that he's the bread of life, there are all these clues that help people connect. The Jewish audience would have connected, oh, there was a story of God's provision. We were led out of Egypt. We were rescued as slaves. We're being brought to the promised land. Well, how did God provide for his people? Well, man out in the wilderness, he provided the bread from heaven. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' declaration in John chapter 7, that he invites anyone who is thirsty to come to him, that he is the living water, he's the source of life. And so if you're thirsty, the only thing that'll quench your thirst is Jesus. And it's part of the way that the people of God would remember the story that when they were dying of thirst out in the wilderness, they're out in the desert, and they're crying out to God, and they're complaining, and they're forgetting all the ways that he provided for them, because they're so different than we are as people, right? Um, They... They cry out to God, and God makes this plan, puts this plan together, tells Moses, go and strike the rock, and out of that rock water will flow. And we we see that even in that it was pointing ahead to Jesus, the one who would be struck, and the water, the living water would flow from him, and that's what he provides for us. And so the Jewish people had various ways, various feasts and festivals, like the feast of the Passover. And then in John chapter 7, it tells us there's this clue that there's this day that they're celebrating what is called the Feast of Tabernacles, or it could be referred to as the Feast or Festival of Booths, where they literally would remember their wilderness journey. It's camping for God's people, basically. They go out and they, they live under these kind of like makeshift shelters and they remember their wilderness journey. And it's in that context, again, that we find ourselves, even though last week we looked at this, this uh, story that's kind of dropped down into the middle, it's Jesus with the woman who's committed adultery, but we're picking back the story now, it's the same time, the same feast that is taking place. And so Jesus didn't just wake up one day and think, you know what, I'm gonna go ahead and just say I'm the light of the world. That sounds interesting, that'll spark some discussion. All right, discuss amongst yourself, right? Like what does he mean by that? Like that's, that's not how he operates. He is making a declaration in light of a story and he's doing it as Jesus does in the most brilliant, profound, intentional way. Because here's what would have taken place. All right, as we talk about celebrating the exodus, all right, we've looked at the bread, we've looked at the water, and then the light. For one, one of the things they would celebrate is as they were led, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a pillar, or, uh, there was a pillar of cloud that during the daytime, it would guide God's people. It was the presence of God, and they were like, well, where do we go? There's the cloud, let's follow it. And then at night, so that they could travel at night if they wanted to, it turned into a pillar of fire. And so there is the illuminating work of God God's presence, not only out in the desert, it could get cold at night, it's providing warmth. Like this was this story that they were familiar with. It's part of their liberation story, their Exodus story. And so they're celebrating that. And one of the ways that they would celebrate that during the feast or the festival of booths or tabernacles would be to remember the light. Now, here's where I think it gets really interesting. They literally would construct there, and there was a temple. It was called the, temple, uh, the uh, courtyard of the women, which meant not just that women were allowed there um, or it was only for women, but it meant men and women, like literally everybody can inhabit this particular space. And it tells us there's a clue in the text that that's where Jesus actually was. And so there were these large stands that were put up. There were four large, gigantic stands, tall enough that it required a ladder for somebody, a priest, to go up and to scale this. And on each stand, there were four gigantic bowls. And so there in the courtyard of the, the women, the court of the women, there were four large stands with four bowls apiece. So if you're doing the math, there are 16 large bowls, all right. and they would fill them. The priest would scale the ladder and he would fill the bowls with oil. Now, I don't know about this detail, but I'm just relating history, so you know, I just, I'm just gonna tell you what, what they would do. This seems bizarre. I don't know if they didn't have other material to use, but they needed something to light, so the oil, what's, what's gonna soak up the oil? How are they gonna create the wick? Like, what is that? Oh, here's what they used. The used undergarments of the priests would be put in each of the large bowls, all right? So you know it's a party when the priests, un- okay, never mind. I shouldn't have said that. But right, like, so here's these bowls, so they're filled with the used undergarments of the priest. Don't know why they did that. And then the, another priest would scale the ladder and each of the 16 bowls would be lit on fire. And those around that time would say, it created this marvelous scene. The reflecting off of the temple and the stonework there, it was radiant and it was beautiful and people could see it from miles around and it was just this sight to behold. It was one of those wonders. Like, if you haven't seen during the Feast of Tabernacles, the lights all lit up, like you've missed out. It's in that context, with that happening, that Jesus steps in and is saying, you think this is impressive? the 16 bowls and the priest's undergarments being burned and all of this and the light that that produces, he's like, yeah, that's impressive for these you know few square miles here where people might be able to see it. He's like, I'm here as the light of the world. I'm illuminating everything. And if you see me and you understand me, it will change everything about your life. By it, you will see, as Lewis said, literally just a new way to see and view every circumstance, everything that's taking place. He says, I am the light of the world. Imagine the power of that. And for the people there, they would have been mesmerized by this scene. And then Jesus is like, oh, this is all pointing to me. Something better and truer is here. It's why the prophet Zechariah spoke of like this day, looking ahead about just the light that was coming. On that day, there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish and it will be a unique day known only to the Lord Without day or night, but there will be light at evening. And Jesus is saying, that day is dawning. That's what I'm here to do. Now, as the passage continues, there are some that begin to argue with them because they're like, well, okay, great. You claimed you're the light of the world. Like anyone can claim anything. Like that doesn't stand up in a court of law. They kind of go this courtroom language. We don't have time to get into all of it, but Jesus ultimately is saying, hey, it's not just me that's bearing witness to this. My father who sent me is the one that bears witness. And so there are two witnesses. It's me, It's my dad, he's saying. My father bears witness and God the Father is telling the truth about who I actually am and what I've come to do and he's validating all of that. But this is going to lead, as you can imagine, to great confrontation because you have a group of people that aren't willing to actually embrace this and Jesus Out of love, and here's what I need you to hear, he's going to say some difficult, some audacious things, some things that you would be like, whoa, can he tone it down a little bit? Like this doesn't seem like the way to go about like making friends and influencing people. This doesn't seem like a great thing to do. But Jesus, out of love, continues to say these things. So let's look for a moment. It's really from 19 through the end of the chapter. We'll take it in sections. What is the confrontation? And then embedded in this, we'll circle back and we'll see there's great comfort to be found in this. But we have to see Jesus' intentionality. And as I read through these sections, please do me a favor. This is what I've been having to ask my, myself. is like, where am I in the story? Where are you in the story? Because here's the temptation of the human heart, I believe, is that we will read this and we will think, oh man, Jesus, go after him, you get him. I can't believe that they didn't believe you. I can't believe that they're missing it. Like Jesus is right there, it's the light of the world. Come on, get on board. Like how could you miss it? And we tend to see ourselves lining up with the hero. We probably wouldn't go so far to say, yeah, I am Jesus, hopefully you're not going that far. But yet we can identify with, yep, we're team Jesus and look at all these other losers over here. And now, the reality is, we have to see ourselves not perfectly aligned with Jesus, but where are the places where I fail to believe? The ways that he's confronting them in love, how might he be confronting me? How might he be confronting you? And it's not to make you feel silly or shameful or to beat you up when maybe you're already discouraged, but rather that you would see, oh, Here's how badly I'm in need of help. Here's how badly I'm in need of God's grace. And here's how abundantly Jesus provides it. So let me read verses 19 to 29. Again, knowing there's more in here than we have time for. But in light of his declaration, they asked him, Hey, where's your father? This one that apparently, you know, validates Jesus. He says, You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury. While teaching in the temple, which that was in the the courtyard of the the women. But no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And that phrase by John is used repeatedly. His hour refers to the hour of his death, the hour of his sacrifice. And that's not here yet, but it's coming. It's like this foreshadowing. The further we get into this, this is where things are leading. Verse 21, Then he said to to them again, I'm going away, you will look for me, and you will die in your sin." Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, uh, He won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he said, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. Therefore I told you that you will die in your sins. For you if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these are the things that I tell the world. Verse 27, they did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. There's a couple things in here. Jesus begins to confront them. And Jesus is gonna say some difficult things. And Jesus is trying to rattle a group of people that are confident in themselves. They think they're getting it all right. This would have been a group that he's talking to that would have had memorized much of what we call the Old Testament. They would have known it backwards and forwards. They would have been dialed in. They would have thought, we are the ones that are doing the right thing. And then Jesus comes on the scene, like in verse 19, and says, you don't know me, neither do you know my father, And he's trying to tell them about God the Father. And he's basically saying, like, you don't understand. Like, if you don't recognize who I am, that I am God in the flesh, that God the Father and me is God the Son, like there's a oneness there, you are missing what is standing before you. Will you get on board with this? It's why he said, I am the light of the world. And what we're going to see at the end of this text, at the end of this chapter, is Jesus' declaration, where he just ratchets it up. It's like, you have to know that I am God, and you have to follow my way if you're going to find life. And he's not saying that because he's on some ego trip, but rather he's saying these things because he understands, listen, you are on a pathway to death, and I have the cure, I am the cure, why would you not partake? He says, you know neither me nor my Father. This is why the writer in the book of Hebrews would talk about the identity of Jesus. This is what has been so key. This is what John is driving at over and over again. Do we rightly understand who Jesus is? And do we rightly understand who we are? Do we see him as the light of the world? Hebrews 1.3 speaks of Jesus this way. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The writer is communicating to us, this is what Jesus does, what he's doing. Like right now, in this moment, he is sustaining you and me and all of us and everything that's happening on this planet and the universe and the galaxy. Like he's sustaining it all by his power. And Jesus is trying to get them to see what stands before you, what stands before this crowd is not just a good teacher and somebody that's nice to people and it works an occasional miracle, but rather God himself has shown up. As the writer would say, he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. And if that's who Jesus is, we have no other option but to gladly submit to him. Now, if claim—if he's not right, if he's a liar, then just disregard it, it's crazy, it's nonsense. But if he is who he says he is, then that will be the response. Dropping down to verse 21, he says this, I'm going away, you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. As I was reading through this section, did you notice, I think it's three times that Jesus says, you will die in your sin. And in case you missed it, you will die in your sin. And let me tell you one more time, you will die in your sin, To die in your sin, to be looking for where Jesus is going and to not find him is what the Bible calls hell, like to be separated from God. And he's saying unless you deal with this sin problem, unless you figure out a way to deal with that, you are separated. Your sin separates you from God. For the wages of sin is death, and he's trying to get them in the same way he's trying to get us to comprehend that. And now if you're here this morning, it's like, oh, I I comprehend that, I get that. This is for a message for other people. Is it really gripping your heart, though? Not just the time when you prayed a prayer and you accepted Jesus, as important as that is, but like, are you realizing your great need for him right here, right now? Maybe you're like, oh yeah, on the way to church this morning, I realized it. Whatever it might look like. But our great need, apart from the work of Christ, we're dead. This is why Paul would write to a church in Ephesus, and before he gets into the gloriousness of God's grace, his mercy found in Christ Jesus, he reminds them, all right, look what your status was. Look who you were. Look what it it looks like for us to be on our own. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 say this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Can we just admit for a moment, like what Jesus is saying? Like, this is hard stuff. Like imagine going out into your neighborhood this afternoon, right? Maybe you have a nice lunch and then you go out and maybe while somebody, maybe other people in the household, maybe they're taking a nap or whatever, and you just decide to go tell your neighbors, like, hey, you will die in your sins. Like you're just walking around telling people that, right? That might be true, but imagine that's jarring. Like what do we do with that? We have to see that Jesus is doing this out of love. He's trying to wake up a group of people who have confidence in themselves, and he's like, you're part of the wrong story. And what's so great when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus is that a group of people who've begun to understand the story that they're part of. But we, it is helpful for us, not to beat ourselves up, but to go back and say, this is our story apart from Christ. I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. I'm separated from God. And it's not just this sort of neutral, like, well, nobody's perfect sort of thing. Did you hear the language that Paul's using and the the language Jesus is using and what he's gonna use later on in this text? You're literally following Satan, right? Like, there's no middle ground. You're either for me or you're against me. Now, we don't like to think in those terms, but that's the reality of it. We're either on a pathway to death and devastation and destruction or on this pathway to life, secured by Jesus. Like, that's it. And if we're on that pathway, like, we realize, oh my goodness, like, it should just cause great rejoicing. Look with me at verses 30 to 47. Again, there's more that could be said, but Jesus continues. Verse 30 is really interesting. He says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So apparently some are coming to, to faith, but yet Jesus keeps pressing. Because I think he wants them to understand, hey, do you realize what this story is? Do you realize What it looks like to surrender everything to me? And it's hard to know, is it those that believe in him that are going to have a lot of the pushback and get angry with Jesus? Or is that another group? We're not exactly sure here. But verse 31 says this, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, we are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? So they're taking issue with that. Now, can we just realize for a moment the fact that they're like, oh, we've, we've never been slaves to anyone. They're under Roman oppression. They've been under the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, various orders, right? Um, and they were under the Egyptians at, at one point, like." I don't know how they're forgetting this, but clearly they are. But again, that's me putting myself in the story and seeing like, I'm, I'm right, I'm here, I've got it all figured out, and yet missing the point that, man, there are so many things that I get enslaved to. And this is what Jesus is gonna drive at, where he's gonna call them out, and he's gonna call me out, and he's gonna call us out and say, if you sin, you're not, you're not in a good spot. Like You're a slave to sin. So they continue. Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then, you do what you have heard from your father, which raises the question, okay, who's their father? And they say, well, our father is Abraham. Cue the song, if any of you know that. Okay. They replied, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. Okay. Again, well, who's their father? And then I think there's some redirection that takes place. Have you ever been confronted before, right? And there's something like you're not sure you want to own that in the moment. It's like, well, let me just point something out. Or, well, you, well, what about you? You do this and that. And like, this is what's happening in this moment. So their response is, well, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Seems as if they're bringing up Jesus' story to say, well, yeah, sure, that, I'm sure that's true about your, your mother, Mary, right? Like, we don't know exactly why they're bringing this up, but it seems like they're not willing to engage the story and they're redirecting, they're trying to be dismissive. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? It's Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. And yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. If there'd been any point at this, up to this point, any moment up to this point where it felt like Jesus is like, okay, maybe he's being um, a, a little less direct or maybe he's softening it a bit, like the gloves are off at this point. I mean, he's literally just told a group of people who regarded themselves, so many of them, as like the religious experts, the ones who were there, they're obeying the feast, they're engaging in the story, they're doing all the right religious things, and he's like, your father is the devil. He has been a murderer from the beginning. And when he speaks, he speaks out of his nature, which is lies. You are living according to a lie. You have been deceived. This would not be a popular message a couple thousand years ago. In the same way, it is not a popular message right now. But the loving message is to actually declare this so that we would see our great need for Christ. And so Jesus says to them, he says, everyone, in verse 34, who commits sin is a slave of sin. And how are you going to get free? This is why Jesus, again, in this moment, on this day, at this festival, says, I'm the light of the world. There's a new exodus. There's a new liberation. There's a way that you can experience life. And it's not through your effort. How many of you, I was thinking about this, perhaps you... I don't know if these things still are around, so maybe those of you that are, that are younger um, here can, can tell me this, all right? Um, but I remember in elementary school, um, this sort of thing that, that we would have to sort of play a prank on people, these sort of finger traps, y'all remember these yeah they still exist I I I don't I don't okay so they exist all right um but the if you remember these particular things you know and you could find some unsuspecting soul who didn't know what this actually was you would just say to them hey I've got this little little game like kind of put your fingers in both ends all right and now try and get your fingers free and what would the person do they would immediately with this little woven thing they would try and pull their their fingers out and as they exerted effort and the more effort they exerted, the tighter it would kind of clamp down and they could not get their fingers free and then you just left him on the bus to cry. Like, that's kind of how it went, right? So you would they would be doing that. Now, you, it's a simple thing, and you know, if you've ever experienced one of these before, the way you actually get out of it is not through greater effort and greater exertion, but rather, there almost comes this point, really of just sort of a surrender of a relax, of a just sort of like, okay, I actually gotta stop trying to exert, and then you can actually free your fingers. Now, that's kind of a, a silly illustration, but when we think about it on a cosmic spiritual level, what Jesus is trying to get at with this group of people. It's like you are enslaved and you're doing all these things that are not irreligious but primarily religious things. Like you're studying the Bible and you're praying and you're gathering as God's people, but your hope is in your effort. And your effort, the more you exert it, it is ratcheting down, it is clamping around, and you are becoming enslaved. You are stuck. And the only way you're going to get free is not through more effort, but it's through a surrender, it's through a letting go, it's through a submission to Jesus and who He is, and then the freedom comes. Like, it's so counterintuitive. As offensive as it seems to say, you're following your father, the devil, right? Jesus, is like, guys, I don't know how else to say it because there's a way that brings life and there's a way that brings death. And the way that brings life is to surrender and experience the grace of God. And the way that brings death is to think it's up to you. To think is what religion, the lie of religion, says over and over and over again. I'm accepted because I obey. Or I obey, therefore I will be accepted. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the I am the light of the world, shining a light on and exposing that lie, would say, no, no, no. It's only through the finished work of Jesus that I'm accepted. And therefore, I will gladly obey. I will love and I will care and I will serve and I'll have compassion and all of those things in light of the love and the grace and the compassion and the mercy that I've received. But this lie that it's up to you and your effort will only enslave you, will only trap you, and will only lead to death. And so Jesus down in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. He is a liar, and he's the father of lies. The great lie, and the one that is, that is so hard sometimes to even pick up on. Like, it's obvious when it's sort of this irreligious, rebellious, you know, people that are like clearly just bent on breaking all the commandments, but what about the people that are kind of squeaky clean? What about the ones that on the surface look like they have it together? What about the the ones that are doing all the right things? They go to church and they give some money and they, they serve every now and again. None of those things are bad. But if it's about your effort, if it's about you feeling like I gotta pull myself up by the bootstraps, if it's up to me to rescue this, to redeem this situation, for one, you're loading up on you a pressure you were never meant to carry and it will crush you because you can't do enough we need jesus this is why jesus would say to the religious leaders in another section where he's speaking hard words and this is in matthew chapter 23 he pronounces these woes so if jesus is showing up and going hey woe to you we should pay attention to that and he says to a group of people that have bought into the lie he says woe to you scribes and pharisees all you religious people are hypocrites You travel over land and sea. So there's great effort to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Those are some harsh words, right? So think about it. These people that are thinking, okay, we think we're living the right story. We've got it. We're going to travel over land and sea. We're going to give great efforts, these missionary endeavors. We're going to try and make a convert. And Jesus is like, okay, you can do that. But all you've converted them into is a lie. And you've made them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Congratulations. And he's saying there is a better way to live. And the better way to live, the truer way to live, is in light of who Jesus is in his audacious claims, which continue in verses 48 to 59. So look with me at this. The Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Again, talk about just redirection, deflection. At this point, they're just like, there's no good reason to think that Jesus is a Samaritan or that he's demon possessed, but now they're just like, whatever they can grab for, they're just like, oh, you're this, right? And so they just are throwing, they're calling him names. And Jesus is like, listen, I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and Judges. And truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, oh, okay, now we've got you. Now we see that you actually have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say, well, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, He is the one who glorifies me, and you do not know him, but I know him. And if I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. And then this audacious claim, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is claiming a connection with a man that lived thousands of years before and he's saying, yeah, we have this relationship. Like, we, we know one another. And so at this point, the crowd is very clear. They're like, he definitely has a demon. Like, this guy is off his rocker. He has lost it. And so their response, as you see, it would, it's a kind of a logical response. They're like, you're not even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham. They're incredulous. They're like, clearly, this guy has lost his mind. Like, do not pay attention to anything that he says And then Jesus just goes another level and ratchets it up. It's like, not only did Abraham rejoice, here's what I need you to see. He says, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And if we're wondering what to do with that phrase how the Jewish people respond to that, how the crowd responds to that tells us the significance of what Jesus said because it says at this point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Why are they so mad? Why are they so cranked up? It's because Jesus has just invoked the name of God to identify himself. When Moses encounters the burning bush and he has the conversation with God and he says, well, who shall I tell them sent me? I am is how God identifies himself. And now here is Jesus saying, before Abraham was, before he even existed, before any of that happened, I am. I was at the beginning, I'm God. And if you're gonna find freedom and liberation to get part of the right story and not this story that leads to death, you have to know that I am God. And they are so put off by that. To them it's blasphemy and so they pick up the stones. Like if you ever interact with somebody, Just as an aside, perhaps like a Jehovah's Witness or somebody that shows up like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. It's right here. Go to the end of John 8. How do you explain their response if Jesus didn't just tell everyone who could hear, I'm God in the flesh? And because he's God in the flesh, because that actually is true now, there's comfort and there's promises that we see throughout this text, and so that's what I want to look at for just a few minutes. There's a long way to get there, but we had to make our way through that to see the conflict, to see all the things that Jesus is saying, but know this, in this, even as he says the hard things, it's out of love so that we might find these gospel promises, a gospel comfort. So if we drop, jump back up to verse 12, Jesus says, anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness. And he's not saying there won't be dark times or dark seasons or that everything in this world is just going to be amazing. But what he is communicating is that the ultimate darkness he took upon himself. That Jesus dealt with the darkness that should have been our entire life. Like, you know when you're in ultimate darkness, like you can't even see the hand in front of your face? Like, it is terrifying. It'll kill you. Like, you literally can't survive in that sort of, sort of place. Jesus is saying, I took the darkness when he's on the cross and everything goes completely dark in the middle of the day and he cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Jesus is dealing with the darkness so you and I could live in the light of his gospel and have a new identity. That's what's the promise here. That is what is on offer here. And then Jesus, dropping down to verse 31 to 32, he says, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's not just a random thing. It's not just spouting off truthful facts. It's like, do you know the truth of who Jesus is, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? And nobody comes to the Father but through me. The most exclusive, audacious claim ever, and yet the most inclusive, because anybody, regardless of your past, present, future, anything you've ever done, you can get in on this. And the language there, we'll look at this later in John 15, but is if you continue in my word or if you abide in my word, if you take up residence, where are you dwelling? Which house are you dwelling in? Are you dwelling according to the truth of Jesus or in this house of lies? Y'all remember that this story, just kind of random, but it happened like a year, year and a half ago uh, when the greatest quarterback ever um, decided to move from the Boston area to Tampa Bay. I'm talking of one Tom Brady, you remember that? Um, and he's trying to figure out like who he is in this new town. And he's supposed to meet up with his new offensive coordinator, Byron Leftwich, all right? And he's supposed to go to his house to pick up the new playbook and to study that. And he walks in the front door because Byron was expecting him. And so Brady didn't even knock. That's just how confident he is, right? Um, and so he just walks in, in the door and all of a sudden he had this moment because this guy who was sitting on his couch that was not his offensive coordinator was like, looked at him and he's like, uh, I'm in the wrong house, aren't I? And proceeded to walk out. What had taken place was, as you see, there was the coach's house. They looked kind of similar and he'd walked into the wrong one. Now, that's just sort of a funny anecdote of walking in the wrong house, but how many of us are guilty of taking up continuing residing in, like we're building a house that's constructed around lies. It's not where God, what he has for us. We're walking in, we're literally going into the wrong house and saying, okay, I'll take up residence here. And Jesus is saying, why would you do that? It's the wrong place. That's not the residence that I have for you. I want you to find life. And then verse 51, truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you continue, if you abide, if you've trusted in him, if you've surrendered in him, if you realize that you've been living according to this lie of trying to get yourself free through human effort, thinking that you'll be accepted if you just obey more, Jesus has come to free you from that. I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, meaning are you resting in the gospel? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus? This is why a couple chapters later, Jesus will say, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy perhaps speaking of Satan, the enemy, perhaps speaking even of these people that were called to be the shepherds of God's people, the religious leaders who had led people astray, that had invited them to the wrong home to live in this state of just lies. And he says, I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. That's what's on offer. So the last thing, all of these promises, all of this comfort and I've made mention of it again, but it is so clear in verse 28, and Jesus says this. He says, guys, when you lift up the Son of Man, which is another way of saying, when I am put on that cross, and I am punished in your place, and I die the death that you deserve, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. We think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. That Jesus was perfectly obedient all the way to the point of dying a death on a cross that he didn't deserve, that he died in our place. And when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know. He's declaring for all the world, this is how you find life. And are you resting in that? So church, in the midst of a passage that confronts us a lot, it brings us great comfort because it takes us back to this true and better story of the gospel you've got nothing to prove. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus. That is what is on offer. And so I wanna pray for us. The worship team's gonna come back up, and one of the ways that we get to celebrate this is through communion. And so if you're a follower of Christ, during this next song, I invite you to come forward and grab the elements on either side of the stage and take it back to your seat. If you wanna stand and sing, you wanna kneel, you wanna sit, pray, whatever you wanna do just in a time of response. Those of you that are gathered with us at home, if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to get the elements there. And I'll call us back in a few moments, and we're going to partake in this, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to remember the story we're part of. What is represented here, this means of God's grace to us, this is the true story. Jesus has accomplished it. Jesus has done it. And our response is just a glad submission to him. He said it's finished, and he meant it, and this meal is a reminder of that. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your immense kindness and grace the ways that you continue to pursue us. Jesus, we thank you for your words to us that can be hard to hear, that can make us uncomfortable, and yet you want to awaken us out of just this slumber, this lethargy that we can get into, or maybe we lose sight of how desperately we need you. And so I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would remind us afresh. I pray for any who have not trusted in you that today would be the day that they move from the house of lies into the house of your truth, that they would repent of their sin, that they would trust in Jesus. And God, we just thank you that you have made provision through your son. And so as we continue in worship, I pray, God, that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience just a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.